Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, heating it up with grand guests and gastronomic pleasures all throughout the hour. So please stay tuned. Let me give you a taste of what's coming up, in fact. What do you know about aquaculture, the process of cultivating aquatic organisms, or rather, Aqua farms, where they cultivate fish or shellfish under controlled conditions. I find it fascinating, in fact, and I've had the privilege of visiting an aqua farm. We are going to sit down and dish with the gentleman at the helm of Carlsbad Aqua Farms today. And we're going to learn all about the farming of oysters and mussels and what is on the horizon, the state of our oceans, and so much more. And it will be, no doubt, uh, learning and growing, maybe like you've never done before. So please don't touch your dial. A really dynamic conversation upcoming and one that will make for very good dinner party talk for sure. (laughs) Also in your radio, he is David Leet and he is at the helm of... Leet's Culinaria, lccooks.com. You know it. It is one of the greatest treasure troves of recipes anywhere on the internet. It's David's blog that's so much loved. But before we get there, you know, this show is all about planning for another delicious dinner, food discoveries, wine pairings. It's where great advice and inspiration is dished out because I believe that a delicious meal can inspire memories and spark the imagination. And so it's my goal to feed your soul every week. I hope you'll dive into the culinary world with me, meet top chefs and master sommeliers, baking experts, artisans, and so much more. It's really eating and drinking and learning and growing like you've never done before. You'll find my daily dish, by the way, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And you'll find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. So please check it out. Now, I like to kick off the show as I have for the last 18 privileged years of sharing what I love and my passion with you on the radio with a tutorial of sorts. And... The upcoming Labor Day holiday weekend, just a couple of weeks away, makes me think or conjures up uh, ideas of all the things I've yet to make to embrace summer, all the dishes I might have missed or those in my repertoire that are my go-tos that I just need to make again. And while I'm a Southern California girl and a girl at the grill, there are many across the country that some weeks from now will close up their barbecues for the season. Well, since grilling season is still here, I thought we should talk about the beauty of grilled fruit because it's the sweeter side of barbecue. And I hope maybe it inspires you to add a grilled fruit dessert to your Labor Day menu. I know you're planning already. It's one of the most intensely delicious flavor combinations I can think of, really. Uh, 
high bricks level or the sugar level of fruit and stone fruit conversation yet to come, but let's start it now. Sweet peaches mixed with smoky charred goodness from your barbecue it really oftentimes doesn't get any better than that. Now, grilling fruit is quick and easy, right? It makes a great addition to every grilled meal. You can use it as an accompaniment to meat, like grilled peaches with pork, or as a delectable dessert. Think uh, brown sugar glazed pineapple. What's amazing is that grilling causes the natural sugars in the fruit to caramelize, and you get this new smoky concoction that gives you a glimpse of how decadent fruit can be. And I always brush the fruit with a little fat because I find that it gets a a better sear, a better char, a better color. Uh, You could use melted butter or a little bit of olive oil if you like. The fat adds another element to the flavor profile as well, and it keeps the fruit from sticking to your grill grates. Now, I think gorgeous grilled desserts make for a very sweet affair. So you should experiment with whatever season's best fruit you have on the grill. But you do want to choose fruit that is ripe, but not soft or mushy. It is a textural thing, in fact. um, And so choose wisely. Now, peaches are a classic, right? I simply have them. I brush them with olive oil or melted butter, as I mentioned, and you can just grill them straight from there. I'll oftentimes uh, brush them or dip them in melted butter and then do a simple combo of cinnamon and sugar. Crust that cut side in the cinnamon sugar and put them right on the grill. Talk about grilled caramel. So good. Uh, You can serve the grilled peaches with chicken. You could dice them into a salsa with jalapeno and red onion. Or for dessert, you could even dip them in that melted butter and then brown sugar instead of cinnamon sugar concoction and grill them to perfection with a a scoop of vanilla bean ice cream and maybe a, a drizzle of honey or your favorite liqueur. You can do this, by the way, with plums or apricots too. You might consider adding a little bit of vanilla paste Way better, by the way, than vanilla extract. And you can find it uh, on my Amazon page where I highlight the best products and food finds that I love. Um, Or you could add another dried spice. You know, if you happen to be um, a nutmeg lover, uh, cinnamon for sure, uh, maybe five spice adds a whole nother level of complexity that it does. And then ice cream or whipped cream or a dollop of creme fraiche and you have a really simple summer dessert. Now, you could go the savory route, uh, grilled peaches with crumbled gorgonzola and a drizzle of reduced balsamic vinegar or maybe a flavored honey. So good. Do you want more grilling fruit ideas or grilled fruit ideas? How about combining a handful of your favorite berries with a sprinkling of sugar and a drop of almond extract in a foil packet? Put that packet directly on the grill. Wait about three, four minutes and then dump that fruity goodness over pound cake, preferably grilled pound cake. And oh, that is just a a plate or a bowl of goodness for sure. Now, pineapple, an excellent fruit to grill. Lots of surface area, right? Nice grill marks on it. It never dries out. It's so juicy. And the heat brings out the fruit's sweetness. You can also cut a ripe pineapple in half or in quarters the long way so that the core is still intact and then place that right on your barbecue. 
I like to season with some um, cracked black pepper, fresh lime juice, and honey. And I'll pair that with pork chops or a grilled pork tenderloin in savory style. For the sweet version, I dust my pineapple with cinnamon sugar, put it right on the grill. I'll put a big, pretty wedge of it alongside gelato. I've been known to puree grilled pineapple to make grilled pineapple ice cream. How about a grilled pineapple colada? Oh, that sounds good right about now. I love to grill fruit, by the way, and then blend it into a smoky, sensational cocktail. I call it from grill to glass. So if you grill limes and grapefruit, you could make a grilled mojito. When you grill pineapple, make a grilled colada. When you grill peaches, make a grilled bellini. Oh, the opportunities are endless. And for the non-alcoholic variety, by the way, grilled lemonade, you dip lemon halves in sugar and then grill them until they're nicely golden. Then you squeeze them and to make grilled lemonade, you would then add water, maybe a bit more sugar or honey if you like, maybe a few sprigs of fresh rosemary, stir it all up, transfer it to a pitcher, cool it down and serve it. But no matter the season, no matter the meal, the celebration or the occasion, If you slice open a banana lengthwise, but you leave it in its peel and you grill it with the open side down for about two minutes, you'll get a little smoky goodness on that banana. Then you flip it over and you add chocolate chips or chopped dark chocolate or a spoonful of Nutella and some mini marshmallows and some graham cracker crumbs or, you know, crushed up Nilla wafers or a drizzle of caramel on top of all of those good things, and you leave the banana on the grill, close the top, and cook it for a few minutes. That is a killer grilled fruit dessert that you will want some more of. Did you see where I was going there? Yes. (laughs) That will end the season, the summer season, in true style. And my best grilled fruit recipes, by the way, are at chefjamie.com for the taking... So you're welcome. Coming up, Thomas Grimm of Carlsbad Aqua Farms in your radio. You and me, Chef Jamie Gwen, back right after this. Digging deep into all things delicious, welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Over a decade ago, I had the opportunity to visit an aqua farm about an hour or so from where I live, long before aqua farms were all abuzz as they are today. And for those looking for enlightenment, an aqua farm is a body of water, usually a tract of shallow water along the shore of a bay or an inlet. And it is used for aquaculture, where they cultivate shellfish, or or fish for that matter, under controlled conditions. Well, it was a glorious experience. And at that time, uh, there was, of course, conversation abuzz about 
aquaculture as a process of cultivating organisms for human consumption. It's important why, you ask, because we know that the overfishing of our oceans and other natural resources is continuously increasing year over year, and we need alternate sources for seafood. I'll tell you, it is glorious seafood at that. The oysters and the mussels from Carlsbad Aqua Farms are delicious. Over its 50-year history, Carlsbad Aqua Farm has become regarded as a model of sustainable aquaculture. And at the helm is a gentleman by the name of Tom Grimm. He grew up in Minnesota with a love and fascination for water. He became a naturalist and then, of course, went into environmental studies, continuing his education. Uh, He worked with the Clinton Foundation on organizing forest landscape carbon measurement and verification workshops. He's done great work for NASA and Google and National Geographic and so much more. And he is the owner of the Carlsbad Aqua Farm. It is a modest, shellfish, sustainable, grown oyster and mussel farm. And it's really quite an extraordinary project. They have just started private tours for the public. And I couldn't help myself but ask Tom to come on and enlighten all of us. Tom, it is a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for taking the time and sharing your passion. Well, thanks, Jenny. Thanks for calling me. Yes, of course. Okay. Uh, Would you dig deeper for me, please? Because I just brushed the surface on the definition of an aqua farm. Um, But tell us, if you would, uh, the, the state of aqua farms in this country and, and how we're doing, I guess, because you're at the helm of the, of the most uh, respected and prized one I know. Well, that's very generous of you. Thanks. Yeah, aqua farming has been around for a long time, and it goes back in many parts of the world centuries. But in the United States, it's more uh, recent that it's become really, really embraced as an important source for sustainable seafood, both shellfish like we grow, yes. but in other places they grow seaweed and fish and, and the like. But our focus is on farming oysters and mussels and now scallops in a very, very sustainable way that improves the water quality and the environment in which we operate. So it provides uh, a new local source for high-quality seafood. And just like you said, Jamie, so much of the seafood we get right now is is imported from overseas. Yes. And mm. from a domestic standpoint, the United States is trying to build more food security by encouraging aquaculture in the form of aqua farms like the one that I operate. Yes, and and you are doing such good work. I think one of the most inter- interesting things, rather, that you just pointed out is that not only are you bettering the planet, and I've not tasted your scallops, Tom. I'm, I'm going to get in the car and drive down <laughs> soon. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, but not only are you doing good work and providing very glorious seafood to restaurants and restaurateurs and retail outlets from your aqua farm, but you're doing better for the planet because, as you said, it nurtures what you do nurtures the water in the inlet, bettering the ocean. Right? It's it's a it's a full circle ecosystem. It's a good way to look at it. You know, when water flows into our lagoon, it brings with it the. Uh, nutrients sometimes from local farming. Uh, mm-hmm. This part of uh, California has a lot of organic farms, and along with that comes a lot of extra nutrients, which cause algal blooms. Al- algae grows there, 
And uh, fortunately, these uh, bivalves, the mussels and the oysters, uh, eat the algae. So they keep it in equilibrium. So the more uh, that becomes a factor in terms of changing the water characteristics, the more important things like uh, bivalves are because they they uh, consume those uh, algae and convert it into the uh, shellfish and the meat that um, is so prized around the world. Hmm. Uh, talk to us, if you would. This is fascinating to me, and I love the science of food. So um, I could talk to you all day, uh, if you would. Talk to us about oyster farming. Uh, there yeah. is a, there is a, a, a very in-depth process, and needless to say, you have to uh, live up to the uh, requirements and palates of chefs, which, by the way, is not so easy to do. <laughs> Well, that's right, and oysters vary uh, quite a bit in their flavor based on where they're, they're grown. And right. There is variation in terms of the strains of, of uh, oysters. Hmm. We work very closely with researchers like uh, our friends at the University of Southern California that are developing strains of oysters that are particularly resilient to the changing ocean chemistry, which is uh, happening all around us. Hmm. The oysters themselves are, we begin with um, spawning them. Uh, we select the best broodstock, the best males and females, and they produce, even just one single pair of oysters, we can produce almost 100 million offspring, but only a very, very small percentage, one or two percent, survives all the way through adulthood. Mm. When we grow them out, we start by separating them into various tanks when they're larvae swimming around freely in a process they call villagers, which means sailors, and they swim around in these uh, tanks until they're ready to settle on pieces of, of broken shells of mother oysters called culture. And that forms spat, little tiny, what looks like uh, eventually like seeds, about the size of a popcorn seed of a while. And those um, spat are then grown in special tanks, upwelling tanks, uh, which they call flupsies, a floating upwelling uh, system. So it's a, it's a funny word to say whether they go into flupsies, but <laughs> the flupsies provide uh, with pumps uh, extra uh, nutrients because they, they, these pumps push the algae through these um, uh, spat at a fairly uh, a much more accelerated rate than they would in the natural world. And then when they get bigger um, and they're ready to go out and to be planted in the ocean, we plant them like you know another crop. They're 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 grown in suspended culture. Isn't that amazing? And, it, and every so often we tumble them, uh, meaning we have a, a mechanical system called a tumbler that. Um, it's like a big, long uh, aluminum tube that spins around very slowly and sprays water on these uh, oysters in their juvenile state. And as they tumble around, it breaks off a little bit of the edge of their shell, which stimulates them <clears throat> to grow more. Because a little bit of stress in these uh, the shellfish causes them to produce a little bit more glycogen and a little bit more meat. It's a, an adaptive uh, response to stress. Just like grapes, when you stress them, they make a little bit more sugar, and a lot sure. of things provide... Uh, create fat or, or other types of things like glycogen. But most importantly, the shape of the shell then becomes more deeply cupped. And that's what mm-hmm. the connoisseurs like you look for, is a deeply mm-hmm. cupped, meaty shell that supports a lot of the both the oyster meat as well as some of the, the liquor, yes. the, the, mm-hmm. the muscle tissue. Yeah. Thomas, I want to learn more, but we need to take a quick break. Will you stay with us, please, when we come back? More on aqua farming, aquaculture, and oh, beautiful oysters. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away.
We're back and we're dishing with Thomas Grimm at the helm of Carlsbad Aqua Farms. We're talking about fish farming or aquaculture and the state of our oceans. I have a, um, an, what I think is an interesting question and it's selfish. I should say shellfish. Can you de- <laughs> determine, pun intended, can you determine the sex of an oyster uh, fully grown? Like, you know, I've often said on the radio over 20 plus years, when you uh, buy an oyster from, uh, excuse me, when you buy a lobster from the fishmonger, uh, you always want to ask for females because they have a wider tail bed, right? And you get more meat. Um, I happen to find them sweeter and I like the roe too. But when it comes to an oyster, you mentioned males and females. Um, is that something we know at the final end of the p- growing process? Well, that's a really good question, uh, Jamie, uh, hmm. because there's, uh, there are male and female oysters, and you cannot tell them apart just by looking and examining their shell. They have to open them up, ah. and then they are already been processed because then they're ready to be served or prepared for, sure. for serving. Now, the one thing, though, that does happen, a number of, of farmers breed them um, as what they call triploids, which are basically a form of uh, breeding where they don't produce gonads at all. They just have meat, and so they don't produce the sperm or eggs because that obviously causes them to grow a little slower because you more resources are made to make the gonads and the eggs and the sure. sperm and so forth. So they many uh, farmers prefer to grow those because they, they grow a little faster and a little meatier, but they're they're different um, than those that are that are uh, still have their their uh, gonads in. So there's so, a difference. And so interesting. All three of them you're going to find on the marketplace. And of course, this is seasonal as to when there is eggs and sperm that you'd find in these uh, in oysters. Sometimes when they're spawned out, that sperm and eggs are released. And so it, it's seasonal as to when. Um, right now, the oysters are spawning in the summer, and so there is more. Um, uh, of the uh, gametes in the in the oyster, hmm. but that uh, then it's no longer present after the spawning season in the fall. Sure, it, it's really, really so interesting and fascinating to me. So, on mm-hmm. an aqua farm like Carlsbad Aqua Farm, can you grow or what can you grow? I should ask year round, or do you call it culture, or what is the proper term? Well, I think all of those things fit. I mean, culture and growing and. The like what we we grow and we harvest and have harvested all year round in terms of our oysters sort of stagger our growth schedule but it is a farm you know a lot of people want us to be producing oysters every day of the year but like there are crops you know and at some point you have to replant them and the like but we do our best because we're blessed with a very unusual climate so in uh, Southern California uh, the weather allows us to grow these uh, animals all year round, so our, our production rate allows us to uh, harvest every, you know, I mean, from planting it to harvesting is like nine months, whereas in some parts of the country, the world, that may be two or three times that long because the water is cooler and there's not as much food available. So we're, we're really lucky. The unique aspects of where we grow our, our shellfish is really quite special because uh, Carlsbad has a aquifer uh, where the water flows down from the, the Cleveland National Forest about 30, 40 miles away, and the water flows through this calcareous limestone um, 
structures, and that brings in alkaline mineral. And that makes the water a little more alkaline, and it brings in that, that calcareous uh, aragonite uh, and, and uh, limestone material, which is what the shellfish need to make very strong shells. Hmm. So because we have all this organic farming and we have the special uh, alkaline water, uh, which is so pure and, as I said, been filtered through miles and miles of, of these uh, limestone uh, aquifers, we have extremely fast and very, very strong oysters. So we're really lucky that way. And, of course, it makes for a very unique flavor that's different than oysters that are grown in a more marine uh, environments or environments that have uh I guess every oyster farm is special mm-hmm. in terms of the water characteristics and the like, but ours is particularly unique because of this, the alkalinity of the water nearby. I can tell you, Tom, I have a culinary memory of having visited your aqua farm, and I remember the salinity, and I remember the clean, pure flavor of that freshly shucked oyster yep. and, and tasting it so vividly. And it really was yeah. one of my first experiences in, in understanding, um, and it was some time ago, when, when the conversation wasn't as present, understanding what we needed to do to, to save our oceans, but the mm-hmm. beautiful rewards you could reap if it was done right and well. And that was what was so impressive to me about your aqua farm back then and it still is today. So well, I, very, I very kind of you to kudos that, to you. That is really something that we take very much to heart. Uh, yes. I started up my life as a naturalist and a wildlife guide. And so being uh, a responsible steward of the environment, hmm. and when you're growing something, to have it be a crop that makes the ocean or this coastal lagoon healthier, yes. as well as making exceptionally delicious food, is really what makes you know my work so gratifying. I, I can imagine, for sure. Uh, you do a lot of coastal habitat restoration, I know. You're involved in projects there, and as you said, you're um, working with um, with other scientists uh, yeah. and those that are uh, passionate. So, what, what's next? If it's oysters and well, mussels now? A, well, that's a really good question. So, in a lot of the areas across the country, uh, really from New England to the Chesapeake Bay, to uh, Newport Beach and uh, all along the West Coast, a lot of the local municipal governments and uh, water authorities want to get oyster reefs reestablished because they are filtering the water. Every individual oyster can filter as much as 50 gallons of water a day. And so millions of these uh, bivalves can really make a big difference in removing uh, algae and well as making the shorelines more resilient to attenuating wave energy. When the waves hit these shorelines, if there's reefs that break up those waves, it keeps the shorelines more intact. Mm-hmm. And as sea levels slowly encroach and get a little bit of push more, more inland, you've got these reefs that are helping as barriers to protect us and those coastal areas from those uh, from the waves, but also from, from making the water cleaner and healthier. And as, as you pointed out, we also grow mussels, which is a, a completely different kind of a a critter. They, they grow on ropes that they attach with little threads, so they don't grow in the same way oysters do, but they grow about the same rate. So we, we harvest those um, after a year of growth as well. Wow. So what, yeah. is, what is next? Oysters, then well, mussels? Really good thing. Yeah, we are also growing seaweed. Hmm. Um, we, the seaweeds are quite a fascinating variety of plants. Uh, 
Yeah. But actually, uh, technically plants are macroalgae, but we're growing them because <clears throat> they also remove carbon from the from the water column. So these giant, what they call giant kelp, or uh, grows at a rate of almost a meter a day in wow. optimal conditions. And of course, imagine a forest growing a meter a day, right? But in the ocean, they take all that carbon <clears throat> that's in the ocean, just like the carbon in the atmosphere, they take it out and make it into biomass that makes the atmosphere, uh, it lowers the carbon uh, footprint not only in the ocean, but also uh, in the atmosphere, because they're just that ocean-atmosphere interface is just part of the, of the natural system. Mm-hmm. So growing seaweeds, we're doing that both from the standpoint of, of removing carbon, but also using it as a food product, uh, and also as a feed product. Uh, we're developing uh, feeds, uh, animal feeds, uh, one of the particular crops we're developing focuses on a type of feed that you can uh, serve to cattle. My back family's been, been in the cattle business, and uh, my dad was in, in the cattle business. And so when you feed this particular seaweed to cattle, they stop producing almost all of the methane that they otherwise release. Kudos to you. I have to tell you, you are a gorgeous representation of doing your part, quote-unquote, uh, and I, I like to say on this show, Tom, that I have this tremendous, beautiful uh, benefit, advantage, and experience to talk to great culinary thinkers. Uh, I don't always get to speak to geniuses. And so I, I thank you for gracing this show and bringing uh, an ounce or, or more of genius to us. Uh, it's a, a captivating conversation, and I hope we can continue it. Thank you for gracing this show and allowing me to talk up Carlsbad Aqua Farm. It's with um, great delight that I get to do so. To learn more, go to carlsbadaquafarm.com. And follow on social at the Carlsbad Aqua Farm. And please plan a visit. I'll meet you there. Tom, always a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, Dee. Thank you so much. As the delicious conversation continues, we're going to take an even bigger bite. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Please don't go away. Life, create, and savor yours. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Do you cook in cast iron? Of course you do. Well, how about on the grill? Well, you should be. The glorious heat conduction of cast iron makes for incredible searing and crusts and flavor. And the exceptionally talented food blogger and cook that is David Leet has some delicious inspiration. So pull out that heavy skillet and fire up the barbecue. We are grilling in cast iron today. David Leet, the three-time James Beard award-winning food writer and the founder of LeetsCulinaria.com, where he shares hot food and dry wit, is also the author of The New Portuguese Table and Notes on a Banana. 
David is an expert on many things, his blog, of course, having been much adored for its deliciousness since 1999, and I'm very proud to have him as a culinary contributor to this show. He's back, and he's got lots of inspiration. And I love that you've already fired up the grill, David, because summer is already here. It is, even in Connecticut, where it's not nearly as warm as where it is where you are. What is your best recipe, that's like asking a favorite child, in cast iron on the grill because I do agree with you we don't use great cooks alike Mm -hmm. do not use cast iron enough on the barbecue I agree and this is a real point of contention for a lot of cooks and a lot of people who grill they think that if you're not grilling and cooking over an open flame then it's not really grilling and so yeah I but I think that there's something to be said for certain things I think are better in a skillet for instance a smash burger you cannot Mm. do a smash burger on the grill you smash it right through the grate it's true and it's the crust of that smash burger yes. that is yes. uh, unforgettable, I'd like to say. Yes. I want to go uh, back to the beginning. So let, okay. let's start at the beginning. Do All you right. heat up your pan before you start to sizzle? Because I give mine 10 minutes on mm-hmm. a hot grill or longer if I set the pan and then fire up the grill. How about yes. you? Yes, you want to get it extremely, extremely hot. That's the most important thing, because don't forget, smash burgers kind of originated in diners and where they had the, the cooktop. The yeah, flat the flat top, top, right. Exactly. So you want to mimic that. So you want to get it really, really, really hot. Of course, you've got to be careful and don't abs- absentmindedly pick it up with your hand because you'll be in trouble. So, yes, you want to get it very, very hot. That's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two, now here's, here's the conundrum that you have, is that with a smash burger, you can get a great crust, but a lot of times you get a dry patty. Or you can have a really juicy patty, but you don't have that really great, crispy crust. So what you want to do is you want to get real high heat, and you want to get a high-fat content ground beef. Yes, like please. 60-40, mm, or yes. even a 50-50. Mm. Things like 90-10 or 80-20 the supermarket, those will be better for plain old cooking on the grill. Right. Or, um, or meatballs or meatloaf or a yes. bevy of things. Uh, exactly. Meatloaf. Any of those things, that's fine. But to do a smash burger on the grill, you really want to have that higher fat. So therefore, when you smash it down, you're not losing a lot of that juice because it's so much fat in there that you're able to maintain the, uh, maintain the, the fat content sure. and that, that juiciness and get that great, great sear. Okay. So on the smash burger topic... Do you mm-hmm. make uh, a big, thick, round patty? Give us the, the diameter and the thickness. And do you simply season salt and pepper? Because I am a purist when it comes to uh, add-ins in my burger, as in I don't add anything in. I agree with you. I start out with a, like a, a round ball. Okay. Well. Maybe about, I'd say, three inches in diameter. Like it's a nice, It cups in my hand really nicely. And that's what I start at because that's where you get the smash down. Yes. Because if you start with a flat one, you're only going to make it flatter and flatter. But when you have it as a ball, when you smash it down and it starts to flatten, that's where you're going to get that real surface and that real sear. And all I do, I don't even uh, season inside the meat. A lot of people will. Because sometimes I'll, I'll have the meat hanging out in the refrigerator. And if you salt it, you start to then... Uh, some of the uh, the water inside starts to get extracted, which I don't like. Right. So I will season it right before going on, and I season it really highly with salt and pepper, and then I do the searing, and I just let it go down and really sear. And when it gets that nice crust, I flip it, 
Mm-hmm. And then I throw on some cheese. Tell us what's coming up uh, new and fabulous on Leeds Culinaria. Well, Leeds Culinaria, we've got a bunch of things that are going up. Of course, now we're in the summer, so we have lots of pies coming up. Blueberry, right now on the site, we just put up tahini chocolate chip cookies. I don't think it's any better than that. No, nothing tahini better. Tahini chocolate chip cookies. Nice. And then we have grilled pork skewers, talking about the, the grill, which is oh, absolutely love lovely. And I'm just going down looking. At, and then this is sort of, it's, it's basically on papillote, but it's using foil and mushrooms even though it's a little earlier in the season but mushrooms done that way are just very smart i think do that in the grill i was gonna say i think you could transport that foil packet to your backyard barbecue and make a mushroom smash burger exactly and then what's wonderful is all the butter and the fat in there and the Mm. flavor and you just put it on top of the burger and yummy you're set dinner tonight i love it and i love talking food with you david as always thank you for coming back to share your passion uh you can find david leet's daily dish of deliciousness at leetsculinaria.com and then there is a shortcut david I, i never remember it it's it's not much of a shortcut then it's lc cooks Com. No, but and that's that's because up. my computer automatically goes to leetsculinaria.com. Yes, you're bookmarked. <laughs> um, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you'll meet me here every weekend when there is lots more fabulous food and fine wine to savor. But don't go yet. Let me leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic pleasure for this week. Summer is sweet, right? And so are the blackberries. This past week, I had the most delicious blackberries, and now I can't get enough of them. So whether you have fresh blackberries or even the frozen kind, or you're going to freeze your fresh berries, we do that IQF, individually quick frozen. Just lay them out on a cookie sheet, one that fits in your freezer, and let them freeze till solid, then gather them into a plastic bag, a sealable one, and keep those in the freezer until you're ready to make two-ingredient blackberry frozen yogurt in a flash. Yes, you will need frozen berries, so you can buy a bevy of the fresh at the farmer's market, or you can use the frozen, as I mentioned. I also use Greek yogurt, uh, flavored Greek yogurt, in fact, and it turns out this sweet, tart, insanely creamy deliciousness. So for my creamy blackberry frozen yogurt, you need three cups of frozen blackberries and one cup of vanilla flavored Greek yogurt. Add a little bit of honey if you'd like it sweeter to perk up that sweet tart ratio. A little bit of lime zest or lemon zest if you like. But it's just so good with those two ingredients as the base. I'm going to post the recipe. I thank you for listening. Please stay healthy. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well.